right, so we're going to have our Ag Biofuse student Rebecca Brown introduce up today's speaker. Hello everyone, this is not about me, so I'm going to get straight into this. Uh, Dr. Katie Barnhill-Dilling is a social scientist exploring just environmental decision-making. She explores politics and social science around emerging applications, biotechnology, and biodiversity conservation and restoration. Her primary focus is on a quali uh, qualitative methodologies, including in-depth interviews, focus group facilitation, and participant observation, while also deploying quantitative methods to gain uh, perspective on broader trends. She holds a PhD from North Carolina State University's Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources and has received many awards and national grants for her outstanding research. I wanted us to get to know our speaker a little bit more than just a research biography. So I asked three questions more specifically. First, what are some of her favorite research topics or, or experiences? Um, Dr. Barnhill Dilling responded that one incredible moment was when she was able to work with tribal environmental leaders to get a sense of what a GE chestnut might mean for their communities. I think this is very relevant to our topic. Um, yeah, so what it might mean for their communities. So on some of those occasions, she had the privilege of going into someone's workshop where she made tradition, where they made traditional lacrosse sticks and, and a lot of other things as well. And then she was able to sit down with tribal leaders um, at their tables, all listening to the stories of their environments and what mattered to them and why. She holds those memories so close to her heart and knows she'll always be grateful for the privilege and their hospitality. My second question, if you could have lunch with someone past or present, who would it be? I'll take a minute to think about that. Who would you really want to have lunch with? Well, she responded, after a little bit of consideration, you know, that's a tough question, when you think that she would enjoy a conversation with Krista Tippett. Tippett interviews individuals about big questions, often at the intersections of science, ethics, and spirituality and what it means to understand the universe from all these different perspectives. And then finally, to wrap it up with my all-time favorite question, if you had to eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? I think this really gets to know people. What would it be? Dr. Barnhill-Dillon answered, captured beautifully a moment in time in her sophomore year during a study abroad experience in Florence. A simple meal of gnocchi with rosé sauce served out of a tiny tur Trattoria, how do you say that word? Trattoria, yeah. Trattoria down the corner, corner from her classroom. So gnocchi and rosé. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Katie Barnhill Dilling. Um, thank you. Um, just to build on Rebecca's really generous introduction, I do want to note that um, the the yes, all those things are true. <laughs> and um, I come at the questions and issues that I address from two interdisciplinary sets of study, and they're both relevant to how I think about these problems. That's why I bring it up. Um, and those are the uh, the tools of science, technology, and society studies, and the tools of environmental science and policy. And so those are um, 
two quite interdisciplinary sets of study themselves, and I mashed them together. I've started calling this this interdisciplinary megatron. We'll see how, how long that holds. Um, but thank you again, Rebecca, for that introduction. Thanks to everyone for coming today. And for those of you joining on Zoom, word on the street is my dad is logged in um, this morning. He specifically told me that when he hears me speak, he's a retired recovering academic himself. It reminds him of when I would go up in front of like the congregation and read and Chris at the Christmas Eve service. So make of that what you will. I promise not to read anything from Luke today. Um, so I do want to start today. Whoop, we'll stay here. I want to start today by like starting to unpack all of these words because there's a lot going on with this title and I kept it that way on purpose because this project had a lot of things to consider. Um, and I'll break this down as we go, but this, this project really does look at regulatory issues, institutional issues, capacity building for gene editing and agriculture um, throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. And I wanna take a moment today to talk about the funder because it's a little different approach. It's a slightly different project, markedly different project for me in some ways than what I usually work on. Um, and that's because this is directly funded by a development bank, the Inter-American Development Bank. Here's some text directly from their website. Um, just to get a sense of what they do. So for, for us as a team, it's been really interesting, especially those of us with almost exclusive academic research backgrounds, to think about how to take traditional academic tools and research and the data that we produce, especially as qualitative researchers, um, some of us, and turn that into like the kind of product that, that a development bank wants in the context of investment recommendations. So that sort of challenge and opportunity is a through line through this project in particular. Um, there were and are a number of different project components. I, like I noted, there's um, this, this regulatory framework to consider in the 10 selected countries for the project. Um, thinking about how those regulatory frameworks are situated in the context of broader global trends. Um, and then thinking about the intellectual property and licenses for gene editing in the region. And so we, we went about, okay. anybody know how far back that went? Like 30 seconds back. So this whole slide. Oh, yeah. um, it just. Okay. These are things that the project was about. Um, you can review if I was silent for that or muted for that. Um, one of the key points, like I mentioned earlier, is that we are talking about these issues in the context of identifying potential investment priorities for the bank. That remains a challenge and novel for me. Today, I'm going to talk about um, some of the some of the dimensions of the project, not all of them. Uh, this these project presentations are generally upwards of two or three hours, depending on the audience. So uh, to draw on a quote from, um, I think this was a Jason idea from a number, of years, a number of years ago, is that this is an advertisement for this work. This is not necessarily the work, so keep that in mind. Um, but I'm going to talk a bit about the stakeholder interviews, the case studies, and investment strategies, again, from kind of a high level. And because of this big, bold set of project components, we have a big, bold team um, that is both interdisciplinary and international. We've got a number of folks in the Zoom room and the, the physical room on this project. 
Um, we also, so we've got a bunch of social scientists, a variety of different disciplines. Mike and Zach are obviously economists. We've got Jennifer working on public administration. We have Margo Bagley, Bagley who's, a, um, who's an attorney who works on IP. And then we have biotech professionals coming out of Latin America, one from Brazil, and what, Maria comes, she comes from everywhere. Um, she, she is a woman of the world. And then we've had the great fortune of um, having Sebastian Zarate, which is one of our AgBioFU students, or yes, um, really contribute a lot of meaningful work to this project. And then not to overlook the other folks, some of the administrative people who work on this, both from the funder Todd Kukin, from whom I inherited this project, and then our project staff here at the GES Center. So this is a big, a big team um, with a lot of goals. And just a quick note, um, I mentioned earlier that there was a number, a, a decent amount of our work looked at regulatory policy in Latin America. I want to point out that Jennifer and Todd produced and published not a policy brief, as Zach rightly pointed out, but a, a policy paper looking, uh, describing the regulatory issues in Latin America as they stood about a year ago. Um, and I think we'll be updated for our final report. I know, if I know Patty at all, she may be linking it in real time um, through the Zoom, but there's also a quick link here at the bottom and I'll link it again. I'll put it up again at the end. Um, so this is just sort of a spotlighting that Jennifer and Todd have put together this comprehensive report on regulatory policy in the region. Yeah, it's just not surprised. And then also um, thinking about the intellectual property, which is an enormous issue, especially with gene editing, because it's going to be kind of hard to detect some of these things in some places. Um, we've got another policy paper out from this project looking at the IP issues from Margo. And again, that, those are all linked through our resource website for this project, through the center's website. So I wanna kind of step back and talk a little bit about the stake, stakeholder interviews that we conducted over the course of a couple of years. Um, a couple of, you know, context. We were supposed to be in country in a couple of countries doing deeper dives and in-person interviews. I don't know, <laughs> some things happened in the last few years and that's, that plan shifted. And we actually broadened the number of countries that we were going to try to work with, but then also just sort of changing the scope of it. So in Instead, we did about probably close to 45 interviews um, just to focus on this particular dimension of stakeholder perspectives. So these are the countries that are represented. Um, these are the breakdown of the sectors that are represented in our respondents. I think we've added a couple of advocacy groups since then, so that shifted just a little bit, and we wanted to bring in more perspective there um, more recently around advocacy work. and. It's really important to think about who our respondents are when we look at our results, because who you talk to really drives what kind of answers you get. And so that's really critical for this particular project, as we'll see in just a minute. Um, but I want to point out first that Sebastian um, Zarate, as I mentioned earlier, who was one of our AgBioFU students, really spearheaded and just took great leadership um, in a lot of the interview process, both in terms of conducting the interviews and the, and the analysis. So I wanna make sure that he gets a lot of the credit because this is a lot of hard work on his part. And a little bit more recently, we added a, a grad student from Yale University, Ilaria Chimadori, and she's also contributed a lot of hard work to the interview analysis. Um, so 
I said <laughs> that who you ask questions of tells you, gives you insight into what your answers might be. Um, but I just want to point out, like broadly speaking from these interviews, look at how many times regulation is noted. So for those of you less familiar with qualitative methods, when we have the transcripts of the interviews, we go through and look for um, themes and then identify some codes, and then we sort of code pieces. So this means that um, regulation was either mentioned explicitly almost 900 times or that it was referenced sort of obliquely in a way that was obvious enough that that's what they were talking about. So regulation is front and center to um, the, it's the biggest concern folks have that we interviewed. Um, and then you can go down the line to think about who, um, what other issues were talked about either explicitly or through inference through the stakeholder interviews. And through this analysis, again, it's coding and a thematic analysis, our team identified a number of challenges that came up again and again in interviewing these folks again from across 10 different countries. And consistently, we heard about regulation and legislation challenges. Um, we hear from our participants that there's a need to clarify an actionable regulatory framework um, and harmonize with domestic and international legislation. So I think one of the key points here is that the, the regulatory framework in a lot of countries is a little bit clunky and makes it challenging to work with. I heard the exact same thing in Washington just over a week ago. So these are not unique issues to Latin America. The sort of the, the, the flavor and nature of how they are challenging is particular to each country. But I think this is something that a lot of countries around the world, if not all, are grappling with, especially in the context of gene editing. Because one of the questions, one of the key questions here for regulation is how are we governing um, gene edited crops or products um, compared to transgenic crops. And there's some discrepancy around the world as to how we are thinking about doing that. And so our, our respondents really highlighted the importance of clarifying you know, the difference between these two processes and how we, we plan to regulate accordingly. Um, the we writ large, not me. Um, and then another thing I wanna bring to your attention is our, our Respondents talked a bit about the limited public engagement. So I think in the in the way that we might, a lot of us might see public engagement is one thing in terms of deliberative, deliberative process and some of those other ways that, you know, broaden the conversation a bit. Um, that's not necessarily what is happening. That's not necessarily the implication here, although it certainly is for some folks. Um, but there there is concern, one, that opposition, again, is based on um, not understanding the technology, which is a common enough misconception in how public engagement might work. Um, and then there is concern about not enough involvement from the public. Um, there aren't very many outre outreach activities and access to information about emerging technologies. Again, their engagement focus tends to be on um, education, which is one interpretation of engagement. And so that's leading to a couple of different issues in addition to the one I, I mentioned. Um, there's also a lot of uncertainty and misunderstanding of what community level perception of these new technologies is. So lack of public, our stakeholders noted the lack of limited public engagement meant that there's, a, there's potential opposition. Um, what we found sort of layering on some analysis here is that there's also a misunderstanding of what communities are actually thinking about these technologies. Um, there's a lot of assumption that local opposition 
is sort of brought in from European and international NGOs. So that's a, lot, a big concern that we'll speak to in just a few minutes. Um, so through those challenges, we also identified priorities that our stakeholders identified explicitly um, or through implication. And again, the priorities largely map and track with the challenges. Um, I, I, the priorities, of course, are to develop and enforce flexible and harmonized regulations. For them, that means um, regulations that facilitate research and development and response to their needs. Um, one of the challenges here, and I like the phrasing that came out of, I think this was Sebastian's or, some, or maybe it's a direct quote, um, avoiding legal conundrums by rethinking usable and working definitions. So the fact that we often use gene editing, genome edited, some of these terms interchangeably, whether or not that's technically accurate, we sometimes do, that's happening absolutely in Spanish language too. And so our definition or our, the, the words we choose have implications for Latin American policy and there's inviting about which phrase to use. And there's a lot of concern and hope that people can sort of decide on terms to help streamline some, streamline some of this regulatory policy effectively. Um, and it's also really important for our stakeholders to allow multiple stakeholders to engage with the regulation and regulatory process. But for the folks that we talk to, they largely mean developer communities and scientists, which is a little different than how um, I often think of that sentence. Um, and then they're also really interested in, in developing education and outreach strategies around different types of crops, um, not just ones that are valued by industry, but also farmers or other communities, including NGOs and local communities. Um, so there's a lot <laughs> more information. Our report's due out in about two months, so keep an eye out for um, news through Patty, I'm sure. But some of our high-level conclusions from the interviews, uh, it's pretty clear from the folks that we talked to that regulation is the dimension that shapes all others. Um, that's really important to them. It can facilitate a lot of the other things in motion. Um, there's a lot of interest in product development and how regulation shapes product development, um, how regulation can influence training, capacity building, and partnerships. I'll talk a bit more about those when I get to the investment recommendations, but regulation seems to really be the lever um, from the perspective of our participants. And we have noted um, that many social dimensions are still relatively poorly characterized and need more research. Um, so the example that we like to talk a bit about when we do our team meetings for the interviews is that uh, many regulators and product developers believe that the activist and NGO work that's happening in Latin America is like I noted it's, it's sort of a transplant from EU or international organizations but on the ground our research indicates that this activism is actually homegrown and mostly concerned primarily first and foremost with a say in decisions that affect them and their food rather than full-on op opposition so there's subtlety there. Um, they do get support from EU and international organizations, but it's, it is support. It is not um, coercion. And so this is just not black and white, white opposition. There's complexity here. And our group really thinks that there's room for a lot of additional research here. And this is true of transgenics, but still, even though, you know, we're several generations into that, but also of the gene editing, because there's just different perspectives coming out of the gene editing um, conversations. Okay, pause, changing gears. 
that's sort of a summary, a quick summary of the stake, of the stakeholder interviews. Again, there's you know in-depth analysis coming out in our report in about two months. Um, I want to talk briefly as well about the case studies that our team did. Um, we adopted this case study approach to offer insight into the complexity and nuance of different kinds of crops in different contexts. So we can read all day long about um, different crops and how they may fit, but when you really do a case study, you attend specifically to the sort of transdisciplinary approach. You're kind of coming at the issue from a lot of different perspectives. And that was really important for us to get a sense of what the landscape is on the ground, both in terms of regulation and capacity uh, more broadly. In the case study, our goal was to look at different country contexts, and that is both in terms of regulatory regime, regimes, which can change, have been changing, um, and the size of the economy as two different two of the variables we looked at. And our goal was to look at different products responding to different needs or challenges. And so this is going to be a quick whirlwind. And some of the slides are in different languages. So I did translate some of the slides, but I also felt that some of these for me works for the close enough to cognate that I just wanted to um, share Maria's slides with you and in a moment, Luciana's. Um, so some of Maria's slides are still in Spanish, but the, the first and foremost, we got bananas. They're really important to a lot of um, growers in the world. And I'll talk a bit, a bit more about that in the next slide. But bananas is one of our case studies, looking at it in the context of Honduras and Guatemala. And two problems for bananas globally are Sigatoka, um, Negra, and the um, Fusarium TR4. So these are just two pathogens that are um, really problematic for growing bananas. And very broadly, uh, bananas are pretty critical to food sovereignty, or security, different, and poverty reduction in the region. Um, they're produced in more than 135 countries and a staple crop for more than 400 million people. So we're talking about an essential source of income in many developing company countries, and both of these pests pose serious risks. Um, Sigatoka is a mostly foliar disease, so it, it really can just mess up the leaves, but I want you to focus on a couple of different dimensions that up to 50% yield loss and almost 100% production loss. Um, this is a highly virulent disease. Things like that are really hard to manage through other tools. Um, first appeared in Honduras. There's a lot of work in Honduras thinking about this particular um, fungus. Um, there is preventative measures and monitoring. There are tools available, but you can look at the price uh, in U.S. dollars per hectare per year and, you know, upwards of 50 applications per year. And we're talking about American dollars in Honduras. So it's just don't have the exchange rate off the top of my head, but know that this is a lot of money. Um, and then just the other, the other problem in the region um, that we're thinking about is Fusarium, TR4. Um, please see the original presentation and reports for more detail on some of these things. But I do know that it's a soil fungus and there's no effective fungicide for either the trees or the soil. And that Cavendish, which is the banana you Ate this week if you ate a banana, almost certainly, um, is highly susceptible. So it is more than 40% of world banana production, but essentially all of the world's exports. So other bananas are grown in certain countries to eat locally. We're eating Cavendish. Um, and the tools of conventional breeding to confer some sort of resistance is virtually impossible because they're all sterile clones. Um, and to, to, to focus on this particular disease, there are transgenic, 
So genes from elsewhere, cisgenic, genes from a neighbor, and gene editing options are all being developed. It's, um, it's interesting to see that it may not be the gene editing option that's the most effective, but the jury's still out. Some of the data are obviously not available to us. Um, but we focused on Guatemala and Honduras for a very particular reason, and that's because there's been these agreements in progress that really think about data sharing, um, especially in the context of um, thinking about approvals for research and um, biotechnology development when you can't import the pathogen to do research on it. So there's biosecurity and biosafety measures in place to prevent for example, Sigatoka from moving across borders, but that means you can't develop a research agenda around it very effectively. So there are agreements in place with Honduras and Guatemala um, that are really interesting thinking about that data sharing across country lines and how um, kind of relying on other countries' data to make decisions. So that's an important dimension on why this particular pair of countries was selected. The other case, and um, I think Luciana's name is not on it, which means that was on me, um, is sugarcane in Brazil and Bolivia. Again, these are slides from uh, one of our colleagues who's been doing a lot of biotech work out of Brazil. So some of our slides are in Portuguese. We're gonna go for it. Um, so essentially it's just, this is a simple enough slide um, that sugarcane is important for Brazil and it's, it's grown a lot of places. So Brazil is already um, doing a lot with sugarcane. It is being grown not exclusively, but largely for biofuels. So this approach, is, or this case study is focusing on the biofuel application of, um, of agriculture. And then on the flip side in Bolivia, this is a new thing being developed. There's new incentives coming out of new legislation around uh, motivation for biofuel development. This is just very new. And so there's a lot of opportunity um, and again, um, Bolivia is really doing the exports of ethanol. So these are both biofuel questions. And again, that's sort of the advertisement. If you want, <laughs> if you want to know more, please read the book. But I do want to reflect briefly on the case studies in general. Um, again, as I noted, the case study approach provides opportunity to look at these issues through transdisciplinary lenses in a way that perhaps other approaches might not. So we've brought in you aren't able to see it today, but there's, you know, there's economic dimensions, there's global market dimensions, or there's local economic dimensions, global market dimensions, lots of regulatory things, lots of developer things, uh, inter-country politics, there's public-private partnership politics. There's a lot of dimensions to these case studies, and that's the reason we chose a case study approach to be able to get to that complexity and to some of that surprise. So when you're looking at complex systems, as many of you know, if you've taken these systems classes, Complex systems give you surprise. And so at case studies let you learn um, through those lenses effectively. Um, and here is where I think it's, it's, it's a bit like the rubber meeting the road. And so there's a couple of different things to think about. So we've gone through stakeholders. We've gone through some case studies. And this is sort of a, a broad overview of how we're thinking about investment recommendations. Just as a side note, I'm a qualitative social scientist. This is literally like investment recommendations doesn't even come out of my mouth very easily. So as we talk through these, I'm going to give, give you what I got. Um, and if you have questions about the specific investment, 
issues, I'm going to direct you to Mike Jones um, and follow up with me later. But a couple of things to think about um, when, we're, when we're considering these investment recommendations. So I'm going to draw your attention to the bottom where we see biotech um, policy broad classification. So this is coming out of our policy paper that Jennifer and Todd put together. And that, act, that actual classification is from an, an older paper cited there at the bottom. Um, but we look at these, these countries through the lens of preventative, precautionary, permissive, and promotional. And it's, it's interesting to see where which countries are where, which countries um, have relatively large biotech industries in them is, is you can almost infer that based on um, the place they are along the policy axis. Um, the other thing I want to draw your attention to is the, real, the, the amount of local development happening for second generation biotech is being measured here. Um, our, our proxy is how much was GM was planted in 2019 um, for some of this. And you can see the relationship there with the relationship of the size of the economy according to 2020 data. And so that is a long walk for me to show you that there's actually, based on the size of these economies and the amount of um, GM area officially planted, um, there's a lot of room for growth. And I think this is something that is really the crux of the investment opportunity, that we've got these, these larger economies where biotech is not necessarily a large part of them yet. And there's a lot of good reason for lots of the reasons that it, a lot of us are interested in biotech resolving or attending to some of these um, food security issues. Um, and so some of the investment recommendations um, really focus on enhancing cross-country collaboration. So I talked a little bit about how challenging some of these re review procedures are when you go to submit. Um, that's true in the United States. People, developers will tell you that. Um, it's true in Latin America and a variety of countries. And so um, there is opportunity to invest in ways for these countries to collaborate, thinking about how to do prior and post consultation reviews and their procedures, thinking about disclosure protocols, um, and really tools for reducing information cost burden. So there's a lot of, some of this is IP, but some of this is just sort of the way these structures are set up. It's a challenge to share information and data, um, especially as you're making regulatory decisions or risk assessments. Um, and to that end, there's a lot of interest from our stakeholders in expanding and coordinating data sharing and recognition agreements on biosafety and agronomic performance. Um, where feasible, feasible and applicable. So that sort of data sharing and recognition agreements is really um, the, the point of using Honduras and Guatemala is because they do have agreements in place on data sharing and recognizing that data from one country can actually serve to support regulatory decisions and risk assessments in another country. And there's, there's interest in expanding that across the region. Um, another sidebar, I, I was at a regulatory policy meeting last week um, a different issue, but a lot of the 
policy questions came up and there was a, a, someone from industry that, that raised their hand and asked about this exact thing here in the United States. And all the regulators were like, oh, no, <laughs> um, it was a big reaction. It was a strong reaction to watch. Um, and they had they had interesting reasons um, and not invalid ones, but it was just really interesting that the exact same questions are coming up um, time and again. And so thinking about the investment opportunity around licensing requirements, um, again, the IP is very complicated. For some of these products, it may be really challenging to enforce because if we're talking about gene editing, these are not necessarily as, as observable um, as transgenics, especially if you don't have some of the regulatory institutions in place that can account for that. Um, and then within, within that licensing, context, thinking about optimal timelines for engagement, uh, particularly in the context of public entities. So thinking about how all of these different dimensions fit together. Um, there's another strong push for expanding student training opportunities. So a lot of the folks that we talked to said one of their limitations is that there's just not a workforce with the skill set required. And that refers to both the biotechnology development itself, but also having some having folks with the um, ability to take that biotech and serve as like a regulator or a risk assessor. And so really thinking about um, both, you know, a bench science biotech, but also how that gets applied in the regulatory system. There's a lot of interest in expanding student training. And the other challenge, sort of other side of the coin for this is that when the students are trained, when professionals are trained, there's often nowhere for them to go. So a lot of folks in the region, or a number of folks that we talked to had, you know, their own anecdotes that they were trained uh, often abroad with the, with the goal and the hope of going back to their home country to serve as a regulator or a scientist in their home country and not having a place either in an academic institution or in a government institution. And so to avoid what, of course, um, a lot of folks call brain drain, one of the suggestions has been to consider the expansion of some of these biodeveloper centers um, with support for investment recruitment and thinking about how those places can sort of scale up and keep and retain some of these subject matter experts that um, they hope to train and retain. Hmm. There you go, sounds great. Um, so a couple of concluding thoughts. I really tried hard to keep it at 30 minutes to leave time for actual questions because that often is challenging for these, these talks. Um, I think it's really clear that regulatory harmonization is a unifying theme. What that means for investment and what that means for those of us who study the governance of emerging technologies is really interesting. Um, it's really interesting to think about sort of fast tracking or working to fast track some of these applications um, and this is me, you know, pontificating here when a lot of us want to have more like more time to engage effectively with multiple stakeholders. Um, so I think about that tension when it comes to this project in particular, especially since there's a call for increased public engagement in whatever form um, that this regulatory harmonization might be putting sort of might be put in tension with some of these broader engagement goals. Um, clearly, there's real clear interest in sharing data across regulatory systems. I've just, you know, just talked about that. That seems to be a really interesting um, 
potential point of point of interest that sorry interesting point of interest um that seems to be a point of contention rather depending on who you talk to but there is a lot of interest as well so again another place of tension um from our work we also just highlight this is not novel but um how case studies are effective for highlighting complexity and some of the surprise that i alluded to is that for some of the issues that we've talked about and looked at um gene editing or genetic engineering either, may not be the most effective solution for key agricultural issues. So keeping in mind, I think we, we all know about the sort of hype, hope, and promise, and sort of silver bullet mentality of a lot of genetic technologies, but keeping in mind clearly um, that this is a tool and a toolkit, not, not the be all and end all just to resolve big, wicked problems around food and agriculture. Um, and something that, has uh, has been incredibly obvious over the course of the last few years is that biotechnology has been aligned with um, partisanship. Um, that's a word that doesn't translate as well into Spanish, but I think those of us in the United States are pretty uh, clearly uh, aware of what partisanship means. And so, in in Latin America, there's you know there's political uncertainty, there's dynamic. Uh, regime changes, there's dynamic administration changes. And so that partisanship issue uh, paired with uncertain po political climates can actually dramatically change biotechnology culture in countries relatively quickly. Um, the implications of that mean that like, sort of like here when we get a new administration and clean house and there's new appointees, where you may be getting folks that are not as familiar with the regulatory system as it relates to biotechnology and certainly aren't as familiar with some of the biotechnology issues um, as they are changing quickly in some of these countries. And so really thinking about, there's, there's, there's not a solution for that, but it's just really important to think about that that, that is just framed so much of what happens in Latin America, both as a region and in individual countries. Um, and I think that's, that's, we've seen multiple times through the course of this project where the administration changes and just like everything's an upheaval and folks from the countries that we talk to are like, yeah, we're waiting to see if we like still have jobs. Um, and so it's just really interesting to see the, the degree to which that political uncertainty can really potentially shape development in the region. And as I mentioned, um, the social, the social dimensions that I'm often interested in remain poorly characterized poorly characterized. Um, and that's true of both local communities and also NGO perspectives. And so there's opportunity there um, for, for future research for any of you that are interested. Um, in part two, the sort of uh, educator in me always wants to sit back and think about how this might relate to training um, our own workforce or our own students, especially since, you know, we're not all going to end up at academic positions. Um, just as Aside, or to reiterate that this was a very different type of research, uh, not just academic research, as I noted. There was, you know, traditional research methods, but then we take that and package it for a funder um, that's interested in, in investment, and there's there was quite a learning curve. Um, and I think it's important to note too that there's different micropolitics in a team like this. So when you work in academic teams, you know, there's certain tensions, certain things to, to figure out. Um, but when you expand that to folks that are really advocating for um, biotechnology development in their home country, and that's a part of your team where there's just a, a lot to navigate um, and trying to hold space for everyone's perspectives and everyone's um, 
uh, everyone's expertise um, was was a real <laughs> was a real learning moment for Mike and me, I think, um, as relatively new PIs. And so we really kind of had to grapple with a lot of challenges. Um, <laughs> COVID was only one of them, um, but it's been an amazing team. It's been a real honor to work with these folks. They are they are incredible professionals with amazing expertise. Like it's just. It's just a big old group of smarty pants. Um, and so I'm really grateful to have had to have the opportunity to work with them. So again, this was a big, broad advertisement for the work. This was not the work. Um, if you're interested in any of the reports or any of the presentations that we've already given, um, here's the links. I'm sure Patty's linking it <laughs> again now too. Um, and so really thinking about the reports that I mentioned, a lot of those have videos of presentations from where Jennifer's presented, where Margo's presented. So if you're interested in specific parts of this, parts of this project that I did not present specifically on, um, those are kind of pulled out for another odd for for other audiences. Um, if you want to sit through two or three hours of meetings, you can learn more. Um, but and we do have a report due out, like I mentioned at the um, middle end of December, where all of this will be put together. Um, if you have any questions for me or the team that are bigger and broader than maybe answered here in a moment, um, we've got the, the team email address, we've got my email address. Um, I included my Twitter handle, even though I haven't been on it since Lent. So um, give it a shot. <laughs> but anyway, so thank you for your time. And I'm looking forward to questions, I think. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, Katie. Um, so as usual, uh, we'll take a first question in this room. And if anyone online has a question that they would like uh, for me to read, put it in the chat. If you would like to ask your own question, which I highly encourage, <laughs> uh, please use the raise your hand function. Um, okay, so are there, I see a hand online, but are there any questions in the room? Yes. Um, you had mentioned that some of the regulators were assuming that opposition was brought in by external forces, so European NGOs and maybe others. And I'm just wondering if this is a typical dynamic in stakeholder engagement, especially when it involves folks from industry and regulators and other people. Um, and if this is typical to kind of characterize opposition or even just concerns as illegitimate. And if so, are there things that can be done during that engagement to kind of ameliorate that? Um, do you mean by engagement there at the end, like when they, they've now called for engagement work? Do you mean that that engagement? Yeah, like okay. ways to prepare for that and then handle it in some kind of format, workshop format. Um, or maybe this is atypical, but I'm guessing not. I think, I think um, in my experience that there is often an othering of the opposition. Um, there's often this assumption that it's an anti-science set of claims. Um, and I think two things to be noted is that, you know, we do have this sort of, the challenges that evidence and science is facing, you know, we hold space for that, but then we also hold space for a misinterpretation of people's perspectives. And so both of those forces are acting together. But I would say that, it, that in my experience, there is often the sort of um, othering of opposition in a way that often leads to 
delegitimization. And when it comes to how that can be ameliorated in any way, I think the challenge here is that one, um, as I said in the presentation, from our, from our data, a lot of the engagement that they're calling for is really the sort of education and outreach piece. And so when we think about what research may actually be funded later outside the scope of this project, um, what recommendations we may be able to give through other papers, like academic papers that are sure to come out of this, is thinking about you know, that deliberative type of engagement where we really do have the opportunity um, to think more critically about the different dimensions of the project. But this is, I've never worked at this scale. And so really thinking about like the sort of community level engagement when you're talking about a national government, and how to link those two across engagement is a real interesting challenge that I'm, I'm curious to see how we think about it in some of these publications coming soon. Okay, uh, Carlos Iglesias, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? Yes, uh, hi, thank you. Can you hear me well? Yes. Yeah, thank you for the presentation. I'm actually from the region. I'm from Uruguay. Had a chance to work a lot in Brazil and Argentina too. And I was wondering if uh, your study uh, took into consideration what I call the permeability of borders in that region. There's a lot of migration. This uh, You have a lot of Argentinian farmers migrating to Uruguay because of government. You have a lot of Uruguayan farmers now farming in Paraguay and Bolivia. You have a lot of Brazilian farmers farming in Paraguay and Bolivia. They not only take their money and their equipment, they also take their technology. Case in point was around the ready beans in Brazil. The government had banned or did not approve GM crops. And suddenly they woke up with more than 50% of the crop being GM, being smuggled from Argentina. Uh, those things, although they're illegal, they're not certainly recorded they can shape policies in a sense because they pressed the Brazilian leftist government to approve GMs, although they didn't want, but the reality was that they were there and they were losing money, so. Thank you, and yes, that's, that's a really great point. Um, that's especially relevant for our case studies in the context of Bolivia, when, you know, like their formal policy is one thing, but what's being grown on the ground is quite different and clearly across different countries. Um, and the, the implication that that can have for um, not just policy and regulation, but like how that shapes some of the things around like economies and, and trade. But yes, we have definitely um, in our reports have thought about that across the region, but especially in the context of Bolivia. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. I thought I saw, yeah. Um, I'm just curious, what do you think contributed to the uh, community level misunderstanding of the technology? Because I would assume there's usually some level of awareness, uh, awareness in a specific technology might have been um, maybe one of the reasons. Gene editing might be a strange term. So what do you think contributed to some of um, so we don't know yet really like there's not a lot of research being done yet um, on perceptions of gene editing especially as compared to transgenics but in the context of misunderstanding um, my main point was that I think that our a lot of our interview participants potentially are misunderstanding what's happening in these communities and what's happening in those communities is that there is homegrown 
um, opposition for very deep, like values based, like core values reasons, um, and sort of sovereignty issues around who gets to say and how they um, interact with food and agriculture. And so there's not a lot of social data on perception of gene editing, like anywhere, but especially in some of these communities um, where they'll be most directly impacted by some of the some of the crop develop or product development. Uh, so I think that's just a space for incredible, like there's a lot of space for research there, um, understanding, I mean, that's true of any of these emerging technologies. When you get down to the ground level, um, there's always space for understanding communities' perspective and values more clearly. So I'm interested in the harmonization finding. Um, and what I'm curious about is, is there an acknowledgement by the different uh, stakeholders from different countries that you interviewed that harmonization will actually mean that that graph of kind of uh, permissive to promotional and, and on the other side, that, that, that then uh, harmonization means sort of collapsing somewhere toward some middle, not probably not an extreme, or is harmonization about something more technical and specific than the general orientation toward the technology? Because I, I guess what, what I'm wondering is whether when people talk about harmonization, do they mean finding compromise or do they mean that the countries who are blocking this technology need to get in line and be more permissive or promotional? I, I do think there's, um, there's an internal and a, a regional approach both. So I think there's some concern that um, the regulatory systems are challenging to move up through. For gene editing, there's a lot of inconsistency or, or a lack of clarity, rather, on who's actually regulated and identified products that are gene edited, whether or not they're transgenic or not on a global level. That's still that's that's, you know, there's different countries with different perspectives um, in the context of Latin America. It's it's kind of a complicated mix of wanting it to be easier to develop products and collaborate across countries. So some of this cross-country collaboration is really what people are interested in to sort of share resources and expertise. But then if there's two countries that have quite different um, sets of regulatory regimes, well, that, that can be particularly challenging. Um, so as I understand it, it actually is potentially more towards that glob in the middle so that they can do cross-country collaborations. but I also understand that it's very specific to crop and very specific to country to country because it's not there's not necessarily a call for a region-wide like data sharing um, type of system, but they are interested in specific country pairings. So it's a, it's kind of a squishy answer, but it's, it, is a, it is an interesting dynamic to see. And it really also de depends on the like individuals, right? So some people have collaborators in different countries. So some of it's personality driven, which is often the case in some of these um, stories. Does that answer your question? Yeah, please. We have a lot of questions coming in now. So um, we'll go to Ashton online. Please unmute yourself. And then I'll read two questions from the chat. Yeah. Yeah. And mine is very quick follow-up to the, the um, really, I, I really liked how you worded that question, Jason, about harmonization. Um, I had to like dip in and out during the talk. So I may have missed you talk about this. But when I think about harmonization, particularly regulatory harmonization, I think about specifically. Um, and so is that something that you were seeing 
like that this is specifically because it's it's not specific to gene editing. It's specific to the problem of international trade. I'm sure that was a top concern for your your client. Um, Ashton, unfortunately, you cut out right at the word before you said blank specifically. Trade. Um, trade. International trade. trade. Yeah, certainly that's part of it. Um, and I think to just think, yes, because not all countries regulate gene edited um, products the same. So I think that's critical, especially as we're thinking across regions. That was all. It was just like quick follow up to the harmonization. Okay, let's go to um, the chat and Carl, Carl von Mogul, I'm sorry for mispronouncing your name, um, says, thank you for the information in your talk. You talked about the views of different stakeholders and about engagement with the public. Do you have any thoughts on what a meaningful engagement with the public might look like that could increase the public's role in influencing the fate of these technologies, but doesn't fall into a simplistic pro-anti-biotech frame? <laughs> That's an enormous question. This is an enormous region. Um, <laughs> just put me on the spot. Um, I have lots of ideas on engagement strategies. I don't know Latin America well enough to, to know like how specific to actually get. What I do know about engagement, especially at the community level, is that every community has its own nuanced distinctions that matter. And so while you could come up with an engagement strategy that really thought about deliberative work, you could really talk about how you would broaden expertise, you would broaden what counts as expertise, you would really think deeply about historically marginalized groups, um, different protected groups, depending on which country you're in. Um, but at the end of the day, oh man, I love that question. That is a life's work <laughs> worth of questions. Um, but I really appreciate it. I think it would be so, like, that's a beautiful question. Super hard to answer. Context matters. <laughs> uh, okay, Elizabeth Heitman online says, on the complex issue of language, have you talked in community context expressly about gene drive? And if so, one, what term do you use in Spanish? And two, do people easily understand the difference between gene drive and other forms of gene editing? Thanks. We have not talked explicitly about gene drive. That's a really good question. Every other project I work on talks about gene drive, not this one. Um, this, this, um, the genome and genomic um, editing de debates has been the challenge, especially um, for policy reasons, but not gene drive. There's space for that too. This is literally my only not gene drive project, but thank you for the question. <laughs> and I think, did I see a hand over here? This might be our last question. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, I, mean, I guess I was just kind of building on that. I was curious about, I mean, you talked about the regulatory frameworks as they pertain to like agricult agricultural biotechnology, but there's also biomedical regulation in these countries or, or and other, other types of biotechnology going on. And I just was wondering in a report, are you going to be addressing like some, I mean, I know that might be beyond the scope, but it also is very could be very relevant, not, not just for regulation, but for like student or uh, professional capacity training, that type of thing. Um, in terms of professional opportunities for people to go back to their home country, there might well be more opportunities in biomedical than, uh, than other sectors. And that yeah. have implications for what you're looking at. Two parts. It is largely outside of the scope, but because we did this in the middle of COVID vaccines, we actually talked a bit about some of the, 
the like customs issues around importing like reagents. And that's, that's relevant across the biotech spheres, right? So there's a number of different um, dimensions of the basic science that apply to both that um, for a while there, when we were really at the height of having these conversations around how to distribute vaccines across the globe, that that was coming up repeatedly. Um, now that that's not at the forefront anymore, it's less, it, we see it talked about a little bit less, but I think there are some, when it comes to both um, workforce training, but also thinking about some of those customs issues and how we, that's part of that sort of streamlining and harmonizing is really thinking about some of these basic science tools that folks in the lab don't have access to because of those import export challenges and people just not recognizing what it is when it comes in. Um, so that's, Totally. I mean, it seems like harmonizing is relevant, not just between sectors, potentially, it's like potentially, yeah, that's a good point. Thank you. Oh, so let's wrap up and thank Katie for her good presentation and discussion. Um, there are a couple of announcements we need to make before we go. One is that next week is fall break, so we'll not have colloquium at all. Um, please rest or rejuvenate or whatever you need to do. Um, the following week, we will have Dr. Paul Enriquez, but he will only be in person. We will not be streaming his talk. So if you'd like to hear um, his talk, you will need to come here in person in 0202. He is a lawyer who also has a PhD in... Um, molecular biology and genetic engineering and he's written a book called rewriting nature and it is about this you know the interesting interaction between law and science and so if you're interested in that talk please come in person on 1018 to 202 we'll also put that in you know the email reminders but um just go ahead and mark your calendars for that because it will not be on zoom Okay, well, thank you, everyone. Have a good week, and we'll see you in two weeks.